Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Reasons to Believe. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Authentic Worship. Human beings will always worship. That's because your heart was created to worship something or somebody that's greater than yourself. We are all driven to bow down and offer our lives to something that's greater than ourselves. One hardly needs to point that out. Consider the evidence. The world is filled with houses of worship, and they're more abundant than grocery stores. It's true, Jesus said it, man does not live by bread alone. Now, to be fair to Jesus, he was speaking about authentic longing in the human heart. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is what sustains the redeemed heart. But even if the heart is unredeemed, even if the heart's filled with darkness, and even if the heart despises every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, still the heart is never satisfied by bread alone. God created us with an innate need to worship. You know, my undergraduate degree is a psychology degree, and I remember the first time in my life that I encountered the humanistic psychology of Abraham Maslow. Maslow postulated that human beings moved up a kind of a pyramid of desires. You know, when our baseline desires or our baseline needs are satisfied, well, then we move up the ladder to the next set of needs. So for Maslow, the most basic needs that we have are survival needs, the need for food and water. I mean, don't ask the starving person whether he or she feels that their emotional needs are being met. She's not thinking about that. She's thinking, can I get enough to survive? And Maslow said that only after the most basic needs are met are we ready to address the next set of needs, and these have to do with our own personal safety. That includes not just safety from someone who's trying to kill us. It also includes our health concerns and whether we can find employment and so on. And then after that, that is, after safety needs are met, we encounter the needs of love and belonging. And then after that, the need for self-esteem and the respect of others. And then for Maslow, at the top, when all other needs are met, is the need for what he has called self-actualization. Well, fair enough. A lot of that, I suppose, makes sense. But I notice that nowhere in all of this does Maslow speak about the overwhelming need to worship. You know, as a secular psychologist, why has he never observed that many people would rather give up their lives than give up the objects of their worship? They would rather worship than survive. No, no. I would argue that the need to worship is the most basic and fundamental need of the human race. God created us that way. But I can almost hear the objection already. You know, but, but. Now, what about the secular people out there? You know, I've read more than one report to indicate that a great many people actually grow up and they die without ever thinking about God. And I guess I have no doubt that's true in some cases, especially in our culture. So let me tell you a little story. At times, I like to go out and read and study and write in a local Starbucks. And the other day, a young woman sat down at the table across from me and she seemed to be a university student. She opened up her laptop, and I was amazed at the things that she had pasted to the front of the laptop. She had a picture of the Canadian prime minister, a past American president, and then a bunch of very familiar political slogans that identified her ideology. 
But clearly, those two men, a Canadian prime minister and an American president, embodied all that she believed in. She was saying, this is what I believe, and these are my heroes. <laughs> but are our heroes a substitute for the worship of God? Well, absolutely. Indeed, I would argue that the more you remove God from your thoughts, the more you crave human heroes. A deep void exists within you, and you simply need something large enough that consumes your life. I mean, consider the massive billion-dollar structures built around the world to house sporting events in which people by the thousands rise and thunder their approval of the man who can score a goal or score a touchdown or hit a ball over the fence. Watch the fans who wear not just the sweater of their team, but the name and the number of the man who is the object of their veneration. It is, in most cases, amazing. The man they worship probably wouldn't give them the time of day if he met them. He certainly wouldn't pay their bills or be there for them in a crisis, but still, they worship. They worship because they must worship. They simply must find something or someone who is more than they are and must revere and venerate and give glory and express adoration. It's basic. You know, furthermore, I would argue that this innate impulse to worship is more important to you than life itself. Take this away and you take your own life. That's why idols captivate the soul. That's why people will go to irrational lengths to defend flawed heroes. That's why houses of worship are more abundant than grocery stores. At the very base of all human needs is the overwhelming passion to fall before either something or someone or to fall before the creator of heaven and earth. Now, having said that, I want to make the next point. And the point is that worship in and of itself is morally neutral. That's because your worship doesn't make you good or bad. It just makes you human. It distinguishes you from the animal world. However, worship is pure or base depending on the object of your worship. It's who or what you worship that ultimately defines the kind of person that you are. And that brings us to a remarkable incident in the life of Jesus. We're studying John chapters 2 to 5, and we've come to John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, before we look at this passage in detail and consider what this means to the issue of worship, let's step back and consider an important point about this text. Anyone who's familiar with accounts of Jesus knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the other three books in the Bible that chronicle the life of Jesus, these three books also record the account of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple. But here's the stickler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record this account as happening during the last several days of Jesus' life, right before he went to the cross, and John records this as happening at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
So what's the explanation of that? Well, John 2, verse 13 begins with the words, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So just like the Synoptic Gospels, John records the driving out of the money changers happening at the Passover. But as we read through John, we'll come to chapter 6, and there we find the same words. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. There, John is communicating that a full year has now passed since the incident in John chapter 2. Now, let's move forward again to John chapter 11, verse 55. And again, we read the words, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Again, an entire year has passed. But in John eleven fifty-five, that Passover, according to John, is the Passover in which Jesus will die on the cross, and it is that third Passover in which Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that he drove out the money changers. And yet, according to John, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple a full two years before he went to Jerusalem to die. And that must mean that John knows that Jesus not once but twice drove the money changers out of the temple. That shouldn't surprise us. According to Matthew 14, 13 to 21, Jesus fed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. And then one chapter later, according to Matthew 15, verses 32 to 39, he fed a crowd of 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. Now, both of those events sound eerily similar. And if we read them in two different books, well, we'd probably say, well, it's, it's really the same event, but no one can agree about the details. But here you see Matthew insists that Jesus did the same miracle not once, but twice. And in the same way, Jesus drove out the money changers not once, but twice, once near the beginning of his ministry and once near the end of his ministry. But why? Well, according to John 2.17, Jesus is overwhelmed with a holy zeal regarding worship in the temple. He's so passionate about what constitutes authentic worship that his driving out of the money changers serves as kind of bookends to his public ministry. His ministry opens with the question of what constitutes genuine worship, and it ends that way as well. Jesus was passionate about proper worship. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, Truth, bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Every male from the age of 12 years old and up was expected to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Passover, which roughly corresponds to our month of March, is the celebration of the Jewish liberation from Egyptian slavery. 
On the night of Passover, the angel of death came down and put to death every firstborn in the land of Egypt. You know, sometimes when we think about the story of the Exodus, we're, we're mistaken into believing that Egypt's bad and Israel's good, and, and that's the reason God punished Egypt, and that's why he liberated Israel. But if that's what you think, listen as the prophet Ezekiel, some 900 years after the Exodus, describes what actually happened. And so, I'm reading Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 6 to 8. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. (laughs) Wow! If the Exodus story is not a story of an innocent nation escaping from a corrupt nation, then what's this story all about? And the answer is that the story of the Exodus is a story of grace. Israel was ordered to sacrifice lambs and then to take the blood of those sacrificed lambs and smear the blood on the lintels and on the door frames of their houses. When the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over those houses and spare the inhabitants from the righteous anger of God. That is Passover. See, after the Exodus, God called Israel never to forget. Israel was no more righteous than any other nation. Rather, Israel had received grace. Blood had to be spilled in sacrifice for her sins. So Passover, well, it was a time to remember sins. It was also a time to marvel at the grace of God. And that's why it was a time of holy worship. God had mercy on the nation, and the nation was called upon to reflect. And so as the nation assembled in Jerusalem every year, they remembered the bitterness of slavery, they sacrificed an animal, they ate together as families, and they remembered the deliverance of God. Now, as Jesus entered Jerusalem for Passover on his first year of ministry, his eyes are focused on the fact that the temple in Jerusalem, place reserved for worship, well, it resembles a stockyard. And there was a reason for that. The law stated that it was illegal to bring defective animals in sacrifice, and so the priests were required to inspect all animals to see that they met the standard. And worship's like that. We don't offer God our cast-offs. Rather, we offer him the best. Now then, to save trouble, the priest might reject your animal that you brought from home, and so you simply went up to Jerusalem and bought animals there. Now, just imagine what a coup it would be to be a vendor of sacred temple animals. I mean, if you got that business, you could make a killing on selling sheep and oxen and doves for sacrifice. But before you could buy temple animals, you had to visit the table of the money changers who would trade your currency for temple money, and there would be a fee to do that. And so there was no time like Passover to make a financial killing. And so the court of the Gentiles was converted into a stockyard with vendors touting their wares and and deals being struck and money flowing freely. It was a business that would make most contemporary Christmas merchants greed with envy. Money was being made. It was flowing like a river. Thank God for Passover. You know, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three books that record Jesus driving out the merchants at the end of his ministry, that is, the second time he does it, 
Mark 11:17 records Jesus as saying, "My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." And that's significant because it was the court of the Gentiles that had become the stockyard. So all the nations of the world who might desire to worship the God of Israel were driven out by the vendors. So what do you want, worship or business? Well, business won out. But the first time Jesus drives out the money changers, you'll notice he simply says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So the first time he doesn't mention the Gentiles, he just mentions business replacing worship. And then Jesus made a whip out of pieces of rope, rope that would have been everywhere, and he drove the traffickers out, throwing money changers' tables upside down, scattering coins everywhere. And apparently, Jesus thought, merchandising was out and worship was definitely in. Now, several things are important. When Jesus did this during Passion Week, right before his death, he scandalized everyone by saying that the temple was his house. See, my house shall be a house of prayer. By then, at the end of his ministry, he was going to Jerusalem to die. And he wasn't concerned about just how greatly he would scandalize the Pharisees. But here at the beginning of his ministry, he's a little more careful in what he says. Here he merely calls the temple his father's house. But the father's house is not a house of trade or a house of merchandising or a house of commerce or a house to get rich. It's a place of worship. Now look again at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's a quote taken directly from Psalm 69 verse 9. And Psalm 69 is one of six psalms most often referred to in the New Testament. It's a psalm of David. In this psalm, David's clearly in trouble. In verse 4, he says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. And then David describes those who hate him. But just as we wonder why this is, David tells us. Verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's to say, the disciples noticed that the merchandisers were offending God, and Jesus took this offense against his father as an offense also against himself. So Jesus is profoundly offended by what's happening. But why is the father offended by merchandising in the temple? I mean, look, you have to buy animals for sacrifice. The law demanded it, so that stuff had to be done. Well, yeah, it did, but it could have been done anywhere, even outside of Jerusalem, let's say in Bethany or just outside the city walls. Ha! But if that happened, then the priests and the religious establishment wouldn't be able to control and capitalize on the flow of money, and this was the opportunity of the temple to make money. And Jesus is saying, if you use the worship of God to become rich, you are deeply offensive to God. If you mix money-making with the obligation to reflect on God's awesome greatness and the enormity of your sin and the kind grace of God in allowing his wrath to pass over you, and delivering you from the hand of slavery and death, if that's forgotten by a money-making scheme, well then, worship starts to be a vile thing. Look, I'm not saying that we should not give generously to our local houses of worship. We should. The Bible's clear on that matter. But worship is intended to open our eyes 
We need in worship to recapture a sense of majesty and wonder or the awesome sense of the divine presence. We're supposed to utter Psalm 46 verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. If all that worship is is noise, or how great the sound of our music is when we gather together, or the business deals we make in the lobby before and after the service, or just meeting together with friends so that we can go out after that for lunch or coffee, if if that's how we treat worship, well, listen, Christ would take a whip to us as well. The point is that worship is pure or base, depending upon the object of our worship. And if we never say, be still, reflect, be in awe of God, be terrified by your own sin, cast yourself on grace. Listen, if if that doesn't happen, our worship becomes an abomination to God. You might take some time to reflect on that. You might think about your own attitude as you enter into worship. You see, that's what Jesus said at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. He said it was altogether important. It was important to him, and it was important to God at the same time. And maybe we need to say that as well. Father, forgive me when I have worshiped without a sense of majesty, without a sense of divine presence without knowing that my sins are covered by your grace. Oh Lord, lead me again to authentic worship. John, as you're speaking, the impression I go away with is that we need to be a little bit more single-minded when it comes to our worship. When we enter into our sanctuaries, our places of worship, we need to be focusing on Christ and and not allow all these distractions to enter into this time we share together. Yeah, I mean, worship is, is sacred, and we need to view it as that. So I think one of the things that we should do is we should ask ourselves, even when we, um, you know, take our time to worship together, let's say on a Sunday morning, uh, that we should still our own minds. Uh, we shouldn't be filled with all of the other stuff that's happening. And, and perhaps we should go already in this attitude of prayer saying, Lord, uh, quiet my heart and let me come to this place where, where, where I will hear from you and become aware that you are everything to me. Uh, that's worship. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.com. 
www.cbc.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.ca.